0: okay good morning everyone good morning. It's so nice to be back uh, preaching and teaching is a gift the Lord's giving me it's something he's called me to do and I just don't feel uh, useful when I'm not able to but it it's also nice to have periods of time uh, where I can not be teaching but I can be taught or I can be fed and There were good times down in South America uh, where we were able to be fed, me more so than the rest because of the language barrier, but, uh, and then here, it's just been a blessing these last few weeks to hear the Word preached from Brother Daniel and Matthew, and uh, there's good teaching here in this church, and uh, I'm always blessed, and uh, there's good teaching in churches around the world. We're not alone, we're not the only true church, we're not the only people... Doing it right. We're not doing everything right. We don't claim to in this body of believers, but what we claim to do is follow the Great Commission and be edified in the Word of God and be faithfully waiting for the coming of our Lord. I was encouraged this morning just by the old hymns. I personally like the days when we sing the old hymns. Not that the choruses are bad or anything, but. Uh, how often have we stopped to, to ponder what these words say? We, we just sing these things. And most Christians today don't even ponder. I mean, think about it. it to survey the cross, how, much, how often have you sat back and surveyed or pondered what Jesus Christ did for us? What they're doing to that man in Washington, D.C., who's been appointed to sit on the Supreme Court, is despicable. But what did they do to Jesus? Doesn't even compare. Brett Kavanaugh has no clue compared to what was done to Jesus Christ. When we survey the cross, do we even think about that? Do we even think about what our Lord has done for us? Or is your hope truly built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness? Many people that claim Christ are not trusting in His blood and righteousness. They're no different than the religious Jews or the religious Catholics because their trust is not in His blood and His righteousness, but in their righteousness and their religion. Your church attendance can't make you right with God. Your voting record, your political party cannot make you right with God. Your, what the the Jewish people call your mitzvot, your good deeds, cannot make you right with God. Only the blood of the Lamb that God Himself provided can do that. And that's the blood of Messiah, His righteousness. The great error that the Jewish people made was they substituted God's righteousness for their righteousness. That's what Paul says. We've made the same error. Many of us would be critical of Israel and the Jews. How could they reject their Messiah? It was so plain. Before that, even comes out of your mouth, look in the mirror. We here in America, you see, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel had God's Word. They had God's Word. They rejected it. The consequences came. We here in America have God's Word. And we have the example and history of Israel that is meant to teach us. We have rejected two witnesses, whereas they have rejected one. And my friends, make no mistake. There's a great difference between Israel, her judgment, and America and our judgment. In the Bible, God describes the sins and the evils of Israel, a nation that knew God. And when these things are described, when you read in the prophets and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and others, it is a word-for-word description of where we are in this country. We are guilty. But make no mistake, we are not Israel. God made promises to Israel for her preservation based on his unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made no such promises to America. No such promises are made to this country. And don't be so foolish as to think that just because God was willing to spare Sodom, if five righteous people could be found there, that He would spare this country if 50 million righteous people could be found. You see, don't make the error of thinking that we, that God is obligated to spare us because He did Sodom. You see, as regards Sodom, the friend of God came to God petitioning on Sodom's behalf. Abraham was the friend of God. God made a covenant with him, an unconditional covenant that we can be a part of through Messiah. But no such covenant was made with America. And God is under no obligation to spare this country, even with many more than five righteous dwelling here. That's happened all throughout history. There were many righteous dwelling in the Roman Empire. Some had been driven into the hills and into the valleys to escape the persecutions, and God spared not that empire. So make no mistake. We are a wicked country, but we have a Savior that has had everything done to Him that could possibly be done to us. The Bible says, in all things like as us, He was tempted, yet without sin. His righteousness is upon which we must trust to be saved. And that is not religion. That is not man-made religion. I'm excited to get back into the book of Revelation this morning. It's been a while. We're just going to proceed as God gives liberty. This week, next week I'll be preaching down at Living Word. And the weekend after, I'll be able to continue. Then there's going to be some time where... uh, uh, you guys are going into, I believe, Second Thessalonians for a few weeks, and then I'll be back with you. So it's good not to get too caught up in one place in God's Word, and remember, all of these messages up to this point are available online, and uh, I, trust, I don't want to repeat a whole bunch of things that have been taught before, but I trust you can go back and still find edification. From time to time, I get messages from people that say, hey, I wanted you to know I'm really blessed by these messages, you know, just from different places around the country and even in places uh, in other countries. And so I'm not just preaching to you guys, I'm trying to preach to whoever has ears to hear and trust that the Lord will use it. So for that, in in, in that vein, let's let's open up today to Revelation chapter 17. Uh, I'd like to just review a minute uh, on the book itself people get into a lot of trouble in this book because they ignore a very simple outline that Jesus himself gives us. Jesus gave John the outline of the book, and if we understand the book in this outline, it's quite easy to understand. In chapter 1, verse 19, John was told to write three things. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things John had seen. Chapter 1, the vision of Jesus, the glorified Christ. Not the weak Christ hanging on a cross with the crown of thorns and the blood dripping down, skeletal and malnourished and beaten, but the glorified Christ as He stands not only in behalf of the church or on behalf of the church, but on behalf of Israel as her future as her Messiah, waiting to come and fulfill the promises. The glorified Christ, chapter 1, the things thou hast seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are the present church age, the messages to the seven churches. It blows my mind that so many churches preach and teach from the Sermon on the Mount, which was given to Jews regarding the coming kingdom and as if that's the constitution for the church, and yet ignore what was written specifically to us, particularly us living in the last days. No familiarity with those messages to the seven churches. Very few. Hardly ever preached. In the things which are, we see a prophetic unfolding of the church age that we can see because we live on this side of history and we can see it played out. I go into detail with that. The things which are. We looked at The backslidden church, Ephesus, the persecuted church, Smyrna, the tolerant church. Tolerance of evil is wicked in the eyes of God. It's not virtuous like the world says. A lot of Pergamos churches out here today. Thyatira, the unrepentant church, a whole lot of those. When the church is unrepentant and the nation is unrepentant, the nation cannot be great again, a nation that once knew God. Make America great has to begin with repentance. And my friends, it's not. It's being built upon a foundation of sand. Sardis, the dead church, started a good thing, the Reformation, but it ended horribly. It ended dead. How many churches have started a good thing and now they're dead? Philadelphia, the remnant church, God always has a remnant. He always has a faithful remnant. Sometimes, as 2 John teaches us, that remnant is local church bodies. Other times, as Third John shows us, that remnant is a faithful seed within, a, within a, uh, a problematic church body or within an unrepentant or a dead church body. So the remnant can be entire bodies or it can be individuals within a corrupt system. And then we have the Laodicea, the lukewarm church. I believe that is the period we're living in now, I believe it started around the beginning of the 20th century and it will end with the rapture of the church. Laodicea means the desires or the rights of the people. And that's exactly what the church is about today. Our desires and our rights, not even pausing to consider what God's Word has to say. We are in the period of the things which are, at the end, the period of Laodicea, there are churches at all times in church history that reflect these types of churches. And there are periods of church history that prophetically have unfolded according to what was given to John in these letters. And then beginning with chapter 4 verse 1 to the end of the book, we have the things which shall be after this. After what? The letters to the church age. After what? The, or the letters to the churches. After what? The, le- the period of the church age. That goes from Christ or from Pentecost until the rapture. This begins in chapter 4 verse 1 with John. He sees a door in heaven. He hears a voice. says, come up. And he goes up. He's raptured into heaven at the precise point in the book where the believing church, the remnant church, will be raptured. And then begins the things which shall be hereafter, the, the, following the church age. The tribulation, we talked about the, uh, the rapture, I did a detailed study of the rapture of the church. That's a biblical doctrine. A pre-tribulational rapture is a biblical doctrine that's taught both in the Old and New Testaments. It's not a new thing that was made up because a blind girl had a dream in the 1800s or because John Nelson Darby just made up something in his sleep. It's a biblical doctrine. And understand something, my friends. If there is no pre-tribulational rapture for the saints who are alive and remain, then God is putting upon those saints that are alive and remain a wrath that has not been put upon any other saint in, in in the history of the world. You see, there's two ways to escape the coming wrath. Death, the righteous. Isaiah says that the righteous perish... And nobody even stops to think that God's just taken them out of evil days to come. When my grandfather died a few years ago, he experienced the grace of God. God saved him from what we're dealing with right now. He saved Ronnie's friend out of what we're dealing with. But for those that alive and remain, they are delivered at the rapture. And if the dead in Christ have nothing on the living in Christ and vice versa, then how can there not be a rapture? It makes no sense. But I don't want to get into that. I covered that in detail long ago. If you go back in the messages on the podcast, you'll see the rapture of the church part one, the rapture of the church part two, and I hope you'll find those interesting if you have any confusion. We talked about the throne room, the scroll, the title deed of the earth. We got into the tribulation period starting with the opening of the seals on that title deed. We talked about Daniel's 70th week, which is the seven-week tribulation Seven-year tribulation. You can't understand Revelation without Daniel. It's impossible. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. What we know as the tribulation. We talked about the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Then we talked about the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials or the seven bowls. Uh, There's been parentheses in the book that pause the chronology and zoom out and show us what God's doing behind the scenes. We see the Jewish uh, witnesses in Revelation 7. God has set aside 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are not saved of yet. They're not part of the church who will complete the job of the Great Commission that the church has failed to do. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that the gospel must be preached before the end comes. We started it, but we won't finish it. And in chapter 7, we see that the fruit of their preaching is a great Gentile host, the tribulation saints. The first fruit, a harvest has first fruits. We see them at Jesus' resurrection. It has a great harvest, which is the church, and it has gleanings, which are the tribulation saints. We saw um, uh, in chapter um, 10, a parenthesis, Jesus, the mighty angel, appearing in behalf of Israel. We've seen the parentheses of chapters uh, 11 through, I mean 12 through 14 or 11 through 14 where we see different characters that will play a a part in this time of Jacob's trouble. And we talked about God's two witnesses and the beast uh, and the false prophet and the dragon and the great war between Satan and the seed of Israel that has uh, transcended all of history. We got into all that. Uh, we, we we finished with the seventh trumpet judgment and went through the vile judgments in chapters 15 and 16. And then we got into chapter 17. 17 and 18, again, are a parenthesis. The, the chronology is not being uh, is not progressing. We've gotten to the seventh uh, vial, which is the end. And then in chapter 19, Christ comes back. It culminates. In 17 and 18 we zoom out and we see the destruction of the world system. The world system that began with Cain. The world system that manifested itself with Nimrod, and Babel, and the great kingdoms of all time. That world system has always had a religious element. An element that says we'll be God or we'll come to God on our own terms. It started with Cain. All man-made religion goes back to Cain. I have this discussion with the Israelis all the time. And it's always had a commercial element. Follow the money. Follow the money. Always been there. Both elements of that system that so many trust in today will come crashing down. It's, been, it's spoken of in the past tense in the Greek New Testament because it's as good as done. Don't put your hope in this system. It's going to it's come crashing down. Both Mystery Babylon and Babylon both the religious element and the commercial element. So chapter 17, we're looking at the judgment of that religious element, the great whore that, that's manifested throughout history and takes the form, I believe, today of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church and all associated with it. Make no mistake, a lot of false religion today, uh, even Islam, was birthed in the Roman Catholic Church it was sowed by the Roman Catholic Church to get the Holy Land back from the Jews. They, were, they had their dirty hands in it. That religious element, that great whore, will be destroyed by the very one she puts in power. And when she's destroyed, what comes to power itself will be destroyed. That's the commercial element. There's a difference between Mystery Babylon, chapter 17, which shocks John when he sees it in commercial ba- or Babylon uh, in chapter 18. But it's all one. The world system, even where the so-called atheists are concerned, has a religious and a commercial element. And it's all going to come crashing down. Then after chapter 18, the chronology will pick back up with the coming of Christ. Armageddon. The destruction of Satan the millennial reign, the great white throne, and the new heavens and the new earth. When you look around today and you see the chaos and you see what's become of our country, our country is not the country we grew up in. Our children will never see that. But remember, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is a hope. We got, I believe, if I'm not mistaken... Uh, Back in in, in February or March, we got to chapter 17, verse 9. We talked about here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. So we're talking about mystery Babylon. The first two verses of chapter 17, she's introduced. She's a great whore that sits upon many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. My friends, what you see, what you saw in Washington, D.C. last week, is exactly what's described here. That is the kings of the earth drunk with the fornication and the sodomy and the adultery and the wickedness and the whoremongering of mystery Babylon, that false religious system. The kings of the earth are drunk on that fornication. It's amazing to me that those who sit up there in judgment against a man who supposedly did something to a girl at a party 36 years ago are the same ones behind the scenes that are involved in child trafficking rings. Pedophiles. Both sides of the aisle. If you don't believe that stuff is going on, you're willfully blind and ignorant. That's what the wicked do. They take their own actions, the things they know they're guilty of, and they project it on other people to hide their guilt. But the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And to harm a little one, it's better for those wicked devils sitting on that panel last week to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be cast into into the sea than what's coming for them. Those wicked Jews and Gentiles. Some of the most wicked people on this planet are Jews. And some of the stupidest people on this planet are Gentiles. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. And judgment is upon all. The word of God was given to the Jews. The salvation is to the Jew first. But the judgment is as well. That every mouth would be stopped, both Jew and Gentile. Let God be true and every man a liar. But this is the world, the kings of the world drunk on the, on the fornication and the adulteries and whoremongerings of that filthy cup that this great whore holds up. America is an abomination. Quit thinking that the America of today is the America, is the America of your fathers and grandfathers. It's not. It's not. That country's dead. I don't know if it will ever come back. It certainly won't without national repentance. How's a country going to come back when it ignores everything that our righteous fathers warned us against? George Washington said, you can't rightly govern this country or the world without two things, God and the Bible. We've kicked them both out. President Andrew Jackson said, it's the Bible that's the rock upon which our republic rests. If we've kicked out the foundation, the building can't stand. Our founding fathers warned us. James Madison said that our national security is not dependent upon our military might or our economic strength. It's dependent upon our ability as a nation to follow the Ten Commandments, to follow the law of God. The Ten Commandments is on the front of that court, Supreme Court up in Washington. And the Ten Commandments, people don't even know what they are anymore. And even though it rings loud in their conscience, they can't hear it. Our nation's drunk on the blood of the filth that's in the cup of that religious whore, that mystery Babylon. But praise God, there's always a remnant. There are wicked people on this planet. Some of the most wicked are Jewish people like Chuck Schumer and Diane Feinstein or whatever their names are. Uh, Others. But there is also a remnant. There are also people open and coming to Messiah in Israel today. There are also those that will have their eyes open. And Messiah, what we need, well, we don't need a president and a Supreme Court justice. That's not what we need. Israel doesn't need an alliance or a treaty or a temple. What we need is Messiah. That's what we need. Messiah trumps Trump by a zillion miles. Messiah trumps accord. We don't need that stuff. We need a Messiah. Oh, he's coming, and he's setting up a kingdom. I wish we'd turn our hearts back to it, but we're not. And I'll tell you what I'm sick of. I'm sick of hearing patriotic people try to compare Trump and this country today and this so-called Make America Great campaign to, what, to, to God's mercy on Judah in the days of King Josiah. God gave Judah a respite of about 31 years before the judgment came. Nothing could stop it because there was a king who sought the Lord and because there were prophets who preached and because a nation humbled itself after the wicked days of Manasseh and Ammon. But that is not us. When those people were confronted with the Bible that was found in the temple, they rent their clothes and wept. That's not what we're seeing today. Don't compare the shenanigans in Washington with the repentance of Judah under the reign of Josiah that gave just a little respite. That began with repentance. That began with weeping and sackcloth and ashes. We have none of that today. Oh, there may be Bible studies in the White House. Praise God. But I'll truly rejoice when I see sackcloth and ashes and weeping and doing what other presidents have done. Calling the nation out for its sin. And calling the nation to repentance. Abraham Lincoln was asked during the Civil War, Mr. President, whose side is God on? Because it was dragging out. He said, ma'am, I'm really not concerned about that. What concerns me is, are we on God's side? Because God's side is what matters. And that's what we ought to be asking ourselves today. What we see in our country today is very divisive. It's division. History repeats itself. And those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Those of us who believe the Bible that don't know our history are doomed not to repeat it. We need to repeat the example of our fathers. But the division we see today is very similar to what was in this country in the 1850s. And we know what happened. There was judgment There was war. There was bloodshed. But there's one major difference between then and now. We may see a repeat of history in this country. We may see the Lord tarry. But there's one big difference between 2018 and 1860. Back then, there were righteous people on both sides of the line. Righteous people in a time of confusion, complexities, and judgment that did their duty and let God the results be in God's hands. It was confusing for some families. And in the midst of all that war and judgment, there was great revival, particularly in the Confederate camps that never gets talked about, a third great awakening, amazing. Prayer revivals in the the cities up north. Today is different. Oh, we're divided, not north and south. We're surrounded by enemies. But today, there are not righteous on both sides of the line. There's none righteous on one side of the line. There's wicked on both right and left sides. But there's zero righteous on the left side of the line. You can't support what the left glorifies and be righteous. The slaughter of unborn children, perversion, homosexual perversion, child pornography and child molestation, lying. God hates a false witness. He hates not the false witness scene, but a false witness, Proverbs 6. So according to the Bible, God hates that woman that gave a testimony last week. Not a single word of it was true. And she's tied to the CIA and the abortion industry anyway. That's the stuff they did to... I'm not even going to make a comparison. That that judge will never know what was done to Christ. I'm glad to see somebody get angry. Somebody needs to get angry at the wickedness. You know, the prophet came to King Jehoshaphat who piled around with the wicked in the northern kingdom and went out to battle with them and met him on his way home and asked him two poignant questions. Should you help the ungodly? Should you love those that hate the Lord? Two questions. And then he said, Therefore, God's wrath is upon you. Shouldn't we help the ungodly? Shouldn't we love those that hate the Lord? It's It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. To love our enemies is not the same as loving those that hate the Lord. Our righteous hatred, though, is not to be violent, we don't respond in violence. The left brings violence. Violence sows chaos. What we need to be willing to bring, if necessary, is deadly force. And deadly force gets rid of chaos. Are you ready to die like your ancestors? I am, if the Lord tarries. I'm ready to die and use deadly force to protect my family and my brethren in Christ. But make no mistake, deadly force is not violence. Violence initiates conflict. Violence is a reaction. Deadly force stops conflict and responds. We live in times when our society is drunk on what this whore has in her cup. In verses 3 through 6, we see a description she's described. Her position, she's riding atop a scarlet beast. Seven heads and ten horns, just like the beast, the multicolored beast we see out of the sea in chapter 13. Guys, the beast she's riding, she's guiding him like a rider guides a horse when you look at the original language there. This is the beast. This is the Antichrist as a puppy. This is the puppy form of what we see that resembles a leopard, a bear. And a lion. All those Gentile kingdoms mixed together that Daniel saw in chapter 7. This is the puppy form. So it's the whore that gives rise to the Antichrist, which is full-blown, multicolored adult in chapter 13. We see this with animals all the time. How many baby animals are single-colored, not anything fancy to look at, but when they become an adult, particularly a male bird, it's full of colors that you don't see. Uh, as a babe. This is the, uh, the beast, the Antichrist, as a pup. The way she's manifested here in purple and scarlet, purple, the color of the Roman emperors, scarlet, the color for centuries of the Roman cardinals in the Catholic Church is the diametric opposite of what God says is pleasing to Him concerning a woman in 1 Timothy chapter 2. A meek and quiet spirit, not adorning herself, with gold and pearls. Not the, or the putting on of fancy clothes. Nothing wrong with wearing jewelry or, fa- or, or clothes. But her adornment is what's in her heart. And that's what people see. Not her clothes. That's a godly woman. And my friends, that is... The diametric opposite of this world system. What our society brags about in a woman is the opposite of what God says is right. The Me Too movement was birthed in hell. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Don't be fooled. Verse 5, we see her name. She has a name. And that name is very, very important to how we interpret this passage. Her name is Mystery Babylon. Mystery is part of her name. So this is not... The literal Babylon, the city, or Babylon, the kingdom. This is mystery Babylon. In chapter 8, we have Babylon the great. So though there's overlap, though it's one world system, there's a hint of difference. One gives rise to the other. And then the other destroys what gave it rise. And then at the end, it's all wiped out. Her name is very important. In verse 6, John is shocked at what he sees. If this whore is the Roman Empire, like the preterists say, then why was John shocked? John was the victim of persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. All of the apostles were dead, had been martyred by secular government and the Roman Empire that persecuted Christians. But what John sees here shocks him. He's surprised. And I wondered with great admiration when I saw her. A woman drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus. New Testament dispensation. And he's shocked. This is not the Roman Empire here. That would be no shock to John. He was experiencing it at the time. Versus, uh, she's bloodthirsty. Those that virtue signal today Make no mistake, these women that virtue signal, this woman that comes up here and brings up some accusation, these are bloodthirsty vampires. They're thirsty for the blood of unborn children. There's so many in this country that are just blood sucking vampires. They love and they relish the shedding of the blood of the unborn in the womb, they love it. This was all about the abortion industry bringing down someone they think is a threat to its money-making schemes and its blood banks. When the vampire has nothing to feed upon or faces that threat, he freaks out. What they need is an oak hickory stake driven through the heart. It's what they need. Vampires, bloodthirsty, the whore, all a manifestation of mystery Babylon. In our day and time. Guys, don't turn off the news. Turn off the news. Undo your subscriptions for online news. All of it's got a tinge of fake news. If you want, the, if you want a source of non-fake news that's up to date, up to the last minute, pick up your Bible. This, this reads like a newspaper because it's being fulfilled before our eyes right now. Things written down long ago. And there's no fake news in here. And it's not biased to Republicans or Democrats. There's no bias here. There's no respect of persons. God will show you exactly who you are in this book and He'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. This is the newspaper, guys. Familiarize yourself with it. In verses 7 through 15, we see her involvement. What is the involvement of this mystery Babylon with the beast, particularly in his puppy form? What is her relationship with the beast? It's a relationship in which she rides and guides this beast. This is the first half of the tribulation before the Antichrist sets himself up as God and uh, enacts the abomination which make it desolate, prophesied by Daniel. The angel interprets the beast first. In verse seven, we see that it's a mystery. The angel's going to interpret the beast first because this is all about how the beast we see in chapter 13 in the second half of the tribulation, this is about how he comes to power. And it's the false religious system, many of which call themselves Christians, that actually bring him to power. It's a mystery. In verse 8, we see his career. The beast was, is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And this will be a source of wonder for the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. We talked about how this has a political element. It's imperial government. Imperial government was in world history. It is not today. It ended with the Roman Empire. And we've had the nation states. We've had attempts at it, but it's never succeeded. Imperial government will rise again. It was, it is not, but it will be. There will be an imperial government that controls this world. So it has a political aspect. It has an individual aspect. Antichrist himself. He was, he is not, and he will be. You see, just like Messiah, when he comes back, has been here before, Antichrist has been here before. He's walked this earth. The son of perdition. Judas Iscariot was Antichrist at the first coming of Christ. Just like John the Baptist was Elijah at the first coming of Christ, Elijah, one of the street preachers, will be here at the second coming. Messiah came once, he came again. Antichrist walked the world once, he'll come again. We talked about the things said about Judas. He's called the son of perdition. It's said that he was taken from the world and put in his own place. He was put in a storage locker for a time. The words used there in Acts chapter 1. So there's an individual. This involves somehow Antichrist that's been here before and he comes back. And then there's a tribulational aspect. We see in the tribulation that there's a world leader who was, he is, and he is not because he's assassinated. He's, he, he dies the death of the uncircumcised, Isaiah says. He has a wound with a sword that kills him and yet he lives. He rises from the dead and all the world wonders after him. We see this in chapter 13. So we have this figure who was coming out of ten kingdoms, a political leader. He's assassinated, and he rises from the dead, and then the world worships him and supports him as he judges the whore and sets himself up as a world leader. So there's three aspects. It's not either or here. It's both and. That's the way the scriptures are. When prophecy is uttered, it has multi-levels, and it's always fulfilled to the letter. So we talked about the political, individual, tribulational aspects. If you want to go back and review that, it's the last message. Very interesting. Verses 9 through 11, where we are today, uh, the angel talks about the seven heads. And that is where we are going to uh, uh, continue our study. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The word mystery in verse 5 of chapter 17 is a a warning sign. It's a warning bell that says you must have discernment. Discernment needed. This is another warning. Here is the mind that has wisdom. We need spiritual discernment. Discernment is required to understand these verses. I've told you before. I'll give you my opinion on what I think these things mean. As regarding the details, I might may be shown to be right or wrong, but what I do need know to be true is that when God gives prophecy, it's always fulfilled to the letter. The details may be difficult to discern, but when it takes place it is clear. And it's often a stumbling block to the wicked or to those who are bent on finding their own interpretation. So I acknowledge all that. But everything written here will be fulfilled to the letter, whether we can see it or not. But discernment is required. We talked last time briefly about how discernment of spirits is a spiritual gift that God gives to some, just like the gift of evangelism. The gift of evangelism, if we read there in Corinthians, is not the evangelist, he's supposed to go out and do all the evangelism and preach the gospel for the church. No, that gift is given for the edification of the church. Evangelism is a gift, but it's also a duty. So the role of the evangelist is not to do all the evangelizing, it's to train the believers so they can do it. When the same sense, spiritual discernment is a gift, but it's also a duty. And so those with the gift are to instruct those to exercise and show them how to exercise themselves in discernment. 1 Corinthians 12.10 tells us discernment is a gift, but Hebrews 5.13 and 14 tells us that we should exercise ourselves in it. And by exercising ourselves in God's Word, we will learn better how to discern good from evil. I'll read that real quick. Hebrews five. 13 and 14. Everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, the strong meat of the word belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We exercise our ability to discern by using this book, not by memorizing it, not by doing a little 30-minute quiet time where we read something and we've forgotten what we read by lunchtime, but by using it. We must have discernment. Judgment, the judgment written about here, the judgment written about throughout the whole book of Revelation, the judgment written about on nations in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, that judgment is literal it is fulfilled or will be fulfilled to the letter. It involves unforeseen details. And it's a stumbling block to those who lightly esteem the word. We acknowledge those things. Remember how we talked about in the Old Testament what the way this whore is described, drunk with the blood of the kings or drunk with the bloods of the saints and you know the kings are drunk on the wine of her fornication. Similar language was used in the Old Testament to describe... Nineveh, the ancient capital of Assyria, and ascribed Ascribe to Tyre, the ancient capital of the Phoenician kingdom, the maritime capital of the ancient world, in and, and both Nahum and Isaiah. And we saw prophecies communicated about what would happen to these cities long before it actually happened. Detailed prophecies. And then we looked, went back and looked at history and we looked at what happened to Nineveh when she was overthrown by the Babylonians in 612 or 613 B.C., we looked and saw what happened to Tyre when Nebuchadnezzar sacked her, and then later when the Greeks raised her to the ground, and how a peninsula became an island, how Nineveh was overthrown because the banks of the, uh, the, uh, the river overflowed and entered the city and broke down what an army couldn't do. And how looking back, these judgments were fulfilled literally, to the letter. So why can't we expect the same here in Revelation 17? We can, even though we may not discern the details. We must be discerning. Oftentimes, what we see as the most difficult things to understand prophetically, the answer is hidden there in plain sight. It's right there in plain sight. But because we're reading and memorizing Scripture instead of studying it and applying it, we can't see it. Remember our discussion on the mark of the beast? Everybody's got their own idea. It's going to be a barcode. It's going to be a chip. It's going to be this and that. The Bible gives us the number of the beast. 600, three score and six. And we're often wondering, what does this look like? We studied about how it'll not only be on the right-hander on the forehead, but it's also in. And we looked at the biometric chips that are in passports. If you have a passport, you, there is a chip in there tracking you. The, only, the way to prove it is just put it in the microwave for five seconds, and there'll be a bunch of black smoke, and when you take it out, you will see a raised square on the back with a wire. Now, don't do that, because if you're going to travel somewhere... Your, your your passport will be rejected. We did it to Josiah's old passport. And that passport tells you it's got biometric data. It's, it's a visible and an invisible sign. The chip is inside the passport. You can't see it. But the sign of biometric data is a little flag on the front of it. It's an outward symbol. So it was on and in. The mark of the beast is the same way. And often, I, the details are hidden in plain sight. Remember we talked about looking at what 666 looks like in the Greek New Testament when it was originally written? It's the abbreviation for Messiah or Christ with a, with a snake-like symbol in the middle. It's, <laughs> nobody would even have a clue what that is, and yet it's exactly what the Bible said it would be. Kind of interesting. I don't know for 100% sure. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but it's the abbreviation for Christ with a, uh, a snake-like symbol in the middle. It's a Greek letter. Uh, it's, it escapes me at the moment. I'd have to look back at my notes. It's not a sigma. It's a strange one. But uh, sometimes the details are hidden in plain sight. Discernment here. Here is the mind that has wisdom. That tells us we've got to have discernment. And discernment, my friends, requires careful study and attention to detail. Okay? To use the scriptures is to pay attention. It's not enough to do sword drills and memorize. We've got to study. It's not enough to sit down with your coffee and I'm going to take a sip of my coffee right here. It's not enough to sit down in the morning and I'm so guilty of this to sit down and I'm going to read this chapter and I'm doing this and my mind's thinking about other things. Okay, I did my quiet time, I did my duty and I'll move on. And then come lunchtime, I can't hardly remember what I read. We can't have spiritual discernment when we do these things. It's got to be something. It's just like in martial arts. You can practice the kata's all day long. And all you've done is memorize a dance. If you never get to the point where you can study and get something from it that you would be able to apply on the street, it's just a useless exercise. Why have a quiet time if you're not getting anything out of it? Why? What's the point? Why come to church if you're not going to come hear God's word? Stay home. Discernment requires careful study and attention to detail. It's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Rightly dividing the word of truth. I've got two messages online I'd encourage you to listen to comparing the study of the Scriptures to the wielding of a sword. There's a correct way to wield a sword and there's an incorrect way to wield it. And we talked about rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a good study on on inductive Bible study. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. 1 Corinthians tells us that we should be comparing spiritual with spiritual. We've got to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. We need to let John speak in Revelation. Let him speak. Don't keep interrupting him and cross-referencing and mixing what he's saying. But then we also have to compare it. We can't fully understand John unless we understand Daniel. We can't understand the Gospels unless we understand what the Old Testament says about Christ. I've shocked so many Israelis when they ask me what what Bible I read because they think we only read the New Testament. And when I show them that this Bible has a big foundation, look at this Bible here. Here's the Old Testament. Look how much of that is Old Testament compared to New Testament. This is a foundation. This is the rock. This part, the New Testament, is the building erected on that rock. You take out the rock... The building won't stand. Shame on Christians who don't take the Old Testament seriously. Shame on Christians that never preach from it and get stuck in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't even understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand the Old Testament. This is God's Word, every word of it. And if the Jewish person won't receive a New Testament, I'll just open up the Old Testament and preach it. Because that's what Jesus and the Apostles did. This is the foundation. This is the prophecy. This is the fulfillment. And therefore, we can say, as it says in Revelation, that the spirit of prophecy is a testimony of Jesus, the Messiah. We've got to let the Scriptures speak for themselves in their context, and we've got to be able to compare spiritual with spiritual. That's how we can understand these things. And when it says, here's the mind that have wisdom, that's a sign that we we hopefully are doing these things. I was blessed this summer down in Juarez, Peru. You know, it's a lonely thing to be like Eric and Mindy in a place like Ladakh. And they can't worship. It's dark. There's not a local church there. That fellowship with the saints is necessary sustenance. And when you're without it, it's difficult. Praise God they've been able to chime in. Years ago, when Jamie and I were overseas, that was impossible. It can be discouraging. We need the local church. Shame on these people that say, well, I I worship God in the woods when I go hunting. Or I go from church to church is what I do. Those people don't want to hear God's word. They don't want to be edified. They don't even understand what the church is. To them, it's not a body. It's just something to do, to think they're righteous. We're here because we need each other in these dark days. We need to lift each other up. We need to hold each each other accountable. But we were blessed. There's a little church up there in Waraz, and it was somehow connected. It's a church plant, or it was somehow connected to, uh, and I'm not sure the details, the, the mission work of Paul Washer down in Peru years ago. When, when Mr. Washer was down there, Peru was not safe like it is now. A lot of terrorist activity, very difficult history. And now you've got peace and an openness to the gospel that's a blessing. And there's a little church there. The, in English, it translates the Bible Church of Grace and Truth. The man that pastors there was born in Peru. He's from Indiana. His parents were missionaries there all their lives, so he grew up there. Just a gentle man, a humble man, but a very good teacher. And I was blessed. They were exegetically studying the book of Luke, moving through the book of Luke on Sunday mornings. Precious people, the whole service is in Spanish. I tried my best to translate for the kids, and Jamie, it was hard. But I was blessed. And he's got the best Spanish I've ever heard from a gringo way better than any gringo I've ever heard. But they were, he was moving through the gospel of Luke. And the thing that impressed me about his preaching is yes, he cross-referenced. Yes, he did the things that we do in here. But he let Luke speak without interrupting, if that makes any sense. He let Luke say what it says without interrupting. it, And in doing so, and in paying attention to those details, I saw things that I've never seen before powerful truths that were sitting there in plain sight the whole time. And it was just a very edifying time. I was fed this summer. And I appreciate that little church down there. And it it, it encourages me to know that there are faithful teachers of the Word around the world. Not complex, not jumping from place to place and using all these big words to sound intelligent, but teaching the brethren and letting the Bible speak. Just Encouraging. His name was Steve Stillwell, and I just—he's just, he's just a, a, a good man, a good teacher, and I appreciated that. God always puts believers in our path when we when we travel. God doesn't need us to do His work; He'll do His work with or without us. But when we're willing to, it's always a blessing. And those are more our brothers and sisters than our own countrymen who have rejected God. Some of our own blood family. But we were doing this exegetical study on Luke and. I got in, kind of got into the mix when he was in Luke chapter 18 and got into chapter 21. And I want to just read something real quick because this kind of, if we can see what happens here and be mindful of these things here, I think we can get a better understanding in Revelation. Luke chapter 18, Jesus in verse 18 is. He's preaching to the people. He's going back and forth between the temple and the Mount of Olives toward the end of his ministry. A certain ruler asked him, saying, verse 18, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler, we're told elsewhere. He brags about how he's kept the commandments. Do not. Uh, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good save one, that is God. So in other words, if you don't accept who I claim I am, God in human flesh. Don't call me good because there's only one good and that's God. Don't call Jesus good if you don't believe He's God. Don't call Jesus Savior if you don't believe He's God like the JWs and the Mormons do. Mormon Jesus and JW Jesus isn't God. But the Jesus of the Bible is God because God said in Isaiah 43, I am God. I am Savior. Besides me, there is no Savior. So if Jesus isn't God, he can't be the Savior because there's only one Savior. Jesus said, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and their mother. And he said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. So Jesus gave him the second table of the law. The second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, are summed up, love your neighbor as yourself, the way we conduct ourselves with our fellow man. And then this man bragged, I've kept all this on the second table from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, He said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute it unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So Jesus then gave him the first table of the law. Have no other gods, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. One's relationship with God. In other words, the first table of the law tells us to make God the authority in our life. So Jesus gave him the first table. Here we had God in human flesh, the Son of God, telling the rich young ruler, go sell everything and come follow me. So you had God giving him a commandment, and this rich young ruler couldn't follow it. So in rejecting the first table of the law, he proved that all his bragging about the second table meant nothing. You can love your neighbor as yourself all day long, but if you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means nothing. The second table of the law can't save you. The first table of the law you can't do without a Messiah. So all the law can do is show you your sin. We need a Messiah. And praise God we have one in Jesus. The rich young ruler had one that day, but he couldn't see it. Verse 23, And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful. Jesus was. Why? Why? This is very important. This is something we've missed. For he was very rich. Rich man. Paying lip service to God, but not trusting God. But then look what happens. Jesus then said to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? It tells us elsewhere, as disciples, well, how can any man then be saved? And look what Jesus said here. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. It's impossible that a man could put a man through the eye of a needle, but that's not impossible to God. So we had a rich man, we have Jesus saying, it's imp- The rich man, it's easier to put a, for him to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom. The people wonder, well, who then can be saved? And then Jesus saying the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So Jesus said this, and we read this, and we're like, yeah, yeah, and we move on. Okay? And then Peter talks about, you know, Lord, we we left all and follow you. You know, and Jesus said, don't worry. I'll take care of you, both in this life and in the life to come. And as you go down through chapter 18, Jesus is coming down to Jericho. He's, He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's coming down the Jordan River Valley from Galilee like people would travel. And he's coming through Jericho. And you've got to go through Jericho and go up to Jerusalem. And there's a blind man there. He heals the blind man. And then he passes through Jericho. And he comes out the other side. Now let's look at 19 verse 2. Let Luke speak. 18's just happened on the way to Jericho. He comes through the city. And now he's coming out and he's going up to Jerusalem. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans. What were the publicans? They were the tax collectors. They were Jews that worked for the Roman government and collected taxes from their fellow Jews. And the religious leaders and the people considered them traitors. In fact, what was said of the publicans in that day is what's said about Jewish people that follow Messiah today. They're not real Jews you're a publican. you've betrayed your heritage, you're not a Jew anymore. If you follow Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, you're not a Jew anymore. Because being Jewish is religious. That's foolish. Being Jewish from day one has always been about DNA. Jews are the physical descendants, not just of Abraham, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're a Jew whether you're an atheist or a follower of Messiah and the fullest Jew there is, nothing makes more sense for a Jew than to believe in a Jewish Messiah. That's the most Jewish thing a Jewish person can do. And yet, the religious Jews want to say that a follower of Messiah is not Jewish anymore. Well, they did the same thing about the publicans back then. We saw publicans that came to Christ. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. Zacchaeus. We know the story. But look at the last phrase of verse 2 a little detail here we've never seen we've never paid attention to and he was rich and he sought to see Jesus who he was was Zacchaeus wasn't listening to preaching he didn't have somebody witness to he was a rich man and he wanted to see who Jesus was and he could not because of the press and then we, we learn about how he climbed up in the sycamore tree and Jesus saw him and, and, and uh, Zacchaeus came down and received him. And uh, uh, Jesus went to his house. I'm coming to your house today. And then, of course, the people got mad. Like, What the heck is this guy going to the house of a sinner? And then what did Zacchaeus do in verse 8? Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. Jesus affirms here. This publican is a son of Abraham. He is a Jew. But here's the thing that we, we miss. Jesus said that a rich man can't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to get into the kingdom of heaven. The people wondered, well, how can he of us be saved? Jesus said the things which are possible, impossible with men, are possible with God. And then just a few miles down the road, he showed it. He proved it. He proved it. Have you ever connected those two stories? They're right there. What a powerful truth. Jesus didn't just say it. He showed it to the disciples. A rich man and a publican at that came looking for Jesus, not because he heard a bunch of preaching, not because he sat and heard the gospel from people multiple times. He came because God drew him and God saved him salvation came to his house. And, and what was the proof? He was willing to restore everything he had stolen and to give to the poor. So remember, friends, when God says that I can do things that aren't possible with men, he doesn't just say it, he does it. And right here was an example. An example that teaches us we, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to reach Israelis, He doesn't need us to reach the loss in our community. He, he'll use us but he'll save even rich man with or without our health. Even though it's so hard for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven, here we have a rich man saved and his life changed. I mean, to me, there's a connection there that we miss when we don't let Luke speak, when we don't pay attention to details. The plain little details, and he was rich, coming in the very next chapter after what happened with the rich young ruler, is, reveals a plain truth. Look, you know, we continue to go through Luke, and here's another such detail. We all know the story at the beginning of Luke 21 about the widow's mite. Luke 21, And he looked up Jesus and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all." So we always look at this and like, you know, Jesus is talking about how even the poor, you know, if they give everything they have, it's of more value than uh, all the gifts of the rich. And we think, you know, sometimes we use that as an excuse just to give a little bit to God. We think all we got is two mites and we throw that in there. I and mean, we take comfort in this story uh, and, and, and to, to excuse ourselves. But that's not all that's being taught here. And here's the proof back up into chapter 20. Verse 45. And all the audience of the people. Here he is at the temple teaching last week of his life, fulfilling the prophecy of Haggai 2. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses. And for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. The one thing that false teachers and the false religious always do. Is they go after the, the, the uh, naive. The widow's houses. And then what, what does he see? The widow. Oh it was a sacrifice of that woman. That's obviously one aspect of what's being taught here. But what we see is that Jesus makes an accusation. And then all they have to do is look up and they see it being done right before their eyes. Why was this woman throwing in two mites? Because her house had been devoured. She had been taken advantage of by the religious leaders who convinced her that she needed to give something to escape judgment. She needed to do this. Instead of them ministering to her, they had convinced her that she needed to minister to them. That's what's happening here. And of course, for that sacrifice, there's blessing, and God sees and understands. But the main point here is, look, even the women, this poor widow's casting everything she has right in front of your eyes. Right in front of your eyes, what I'm telling you is happening, and you're too blind to see it. That's the great lesson there. And if we don't back up into chapter 20 and connect them, we don't see that. My friends... We pay lip service to evil, and we, we, we understand that certain things happen in this world, but it's happening right now before our eyes, and we can't see it. It's happening right here in our country, and we can't see it. We can just lift up our eyes and walk around, walk into Best Buy, walk into Walmart. Everything that was written in the prophets concerning Israel, we're guilty of, and we can't see it. Just like the people couldn't see the widow's houses being devoured happen right in front of their eyes. Little details. Same thing in Mark. Same thing in Mark happens. Jesus rebukes the religious for what they do to widows and then we see what the the widow casts and everything. She she should have never had to cast anything in there. The fact she did was a sacrifice. I'm not disannulling the teaching we've all heard about that. But we've missed a detail. Then we get into Luke chapter 21. And we have what is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. This is where Jesus discusses what He calls the Great Tribulation. Okay? A shadow fulfillment would happen on the near horizon. The sack of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD Seventy. This would be a type of the ultimate... Uh, uh, events of the great tribulation. When we talk about the tribulation, we're talking about Daniel's 70th week. The, The 70th week. One week of years. Seven years. It's what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation serves two purposes. To judge the world for its wickedness. Make no mistake, Antichrist is a judgment from God. He's called in Isaiah 10, the rod of my anger. It's God's punishment on the world. And the second purpose is to wake up the nation of Israel. To wake them up so they can finally see that Jesus is the Messiah. And they'll call for him, Hosea 5.15, and then he'll return. But Jesus, when he speaks of the great tribulation, is talking about the last three and a half years. There's a midpoint. In the middle of the week, Daniel says, Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. And then he sets himself up as God. And then he turns on those that trusted him. Israel has to follow a false Messiah first to the point of her utter ruin before she'll wake up and see the true Messiah. And I tell the Israelis, I say, there's a time coming you're going to fall prey to a false Messiah. There's hard times coming before the salvation spoken of in the prophets. I'll tell them straight up. Hoping that they'll be one of those witnesses who won't fall for it. Because we know there's 144,000. But in Luke chapter twenty one, when Jesus is talking, he gives a sign that the people should look for. And in Mark twenty four and Matthew thir- uh, Mark, Matthew twenty four and Mark thirteen, he gives a different sign. So you get all this confusion, and then you have got these preterists and these reformists teaching us that everything written in the Olivet discourse and everything written in Revelation all took place in the past, and that Daniel seventy week was already fulfilled, and the church is replaced. Israel. And some people teach that we're living in a millennium now. But they can't see why the signs are different. And there's a little a detail here that we've never seen. We never thought about it. And I've talked on the Olivet Discourse. It's really not right to call Luke 21 the Olivet Discourse. It's not the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is not on the Mount of Olives and He's not, teaching, he's not talking to His disciples. It's not the Olivet Discourse. But the sign given in Luke 21 that the Jews are told to look for is uh, verse 20. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, know that the desolation is nigh. So the sign Jesus gives to the people there is the surrounding of Jerusalem and the desolation. Well, many of the people that heard that were still alive 40 years later. The sign was the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans. That was, the des- that was a desolation. It was the desolation in the near horizon, but it wasn't the abomination of desolation. Very different. So they're told to look for Jerusalem surrounded with armies and to know that the desolation is, li- is nigh. And then we're told after that, that the Jews will fall by the sword and they will be led captive and scattered into all nations and Jerusalem will be trodden of the Gentiles until the end of the Gentile period. Well, ever since A.D. 70, the Jews were scattered. And Jerusalem has been a Gentile, Has been controlled by Gentiles. It's controlled by Gentiles today. I mean, the world basically determines what happens there. Look at all the garbage Israel had to go through just to get a, a, an embassy there. Make no mistake. Israel and Jerusalem do not belong to the Jews. They be, it, the land belongs to God. God says the land is mine. And God gave it to the Jews. It's not their land. It's his (laughs) land. And he gives it to whom he pleases for his purposes. He never gave it to the Palestinians. He never gave it to the Muslims. He never promised some fairy tale that Muhammad... Muhammad never even went there. He had a dream about it, supposedly. The Catholics wanted it. And they... they, uh, sowed the birth of Islam and thought they'd use the Arabs to get it back. And then the Arabs double-crossed them and kept it for themselves. That's what happened. A lot of times the plans of the wicked blow up in their face, and Islam is an example of that. A wicked, devious plan by the Catholic Church that dominated the world scene at the time blew up in their face. But Luke 21 gives us a near-horizon sign. And then in verse 36, Jesus says... Pray that you will be accounted worthy to escape all these things. So whoever he's talking to, he's saying, you need to pray that you can escape these things. There's two ways to escape these, these type of judgments. Death. Isaiah says the righteous die because God's taken them away from the evil to come. And at the sa- around the same time Isaiah prophesied these things, we saw it happen. The young king who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength died at 31 years of age. Why? Why? God just took him out. And then you escape these things by being raptured with the church. And Jesus is saying, pray you can escape. Either through death, near horizon, or rapture, far horizon. But in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, there's another sign given. Not the surrounding of Jerusalem with armies that the people there would see 40 years later in AD 7. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says, and he says the same thing in Mark, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, then flee. Well, the abomination of desolation is out of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy that happens in the middle of the 70th week when he that makes the covenant betrays the covenant. Antichrist. So a different sign is given in Matthew 24. The sign of the Roman uh, sack of Jerusalem and the Jews being scattered and all that's just skipped over. And there's a different sign given. Same thing in Mark. And then Matthew 24 describes the rapture. Something that Luke doesn't even mention in chapter 21. Two will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Two grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. That word taken there is the same word that's used in In Luke chapter 1, or Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph took Mary to be his wife. It's not the word used when it talks about in the days of Noah, the flood took them all away. It swept them all away. It's a different word, paralambano in the Greek. I don't like to pronounce Greek from the pulpit. It's a useless thing to do. You won't remember it anyway. We don't even know if it's correct because it's a dead language. So I'm sorry. But... And then we look at John 14 and the marriage imagery. There's no doubt that what we see here in Matthew 24 with the two in the field and the two in the bed, the two at the mill is the rapture. But that's not in Luke 21. Why are there these differences? Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus says something He doesn't say in Luke. He says the gospel has to be preached first to all the nations before the end can come. But none of that's in Luke. Why are there differences here? If this is the same message, is he contradicting himself? Well, no, it's not the same message, and it's not the same audience. And we fail to see it because we miss details. Look at Luke 21. There's a little detail that explains everything. All of a sudden, these messages with different signs and different emphases make sense. Luke 21, 37. Let's look at verse 36. Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things and that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him in the temple. In Luke 21, where the sign is the Roman desolation of Jerusalem, he's preaching in the temple. He's not on the Mount of Olives. And his audience is the people, the people of Israel that would crucify him later that week. That's his audience. So he's giving them something they're going to see with their own eyes 40 years later that's going to remind them that this man they crucified was real. He's telling them, I hope you can escape these things. He's telling them after this desolation, you're going to be scattered to the end of the world, to the ends of the earth, and Jerusalem's going to be trodden of the Gentiles. We've seen that's been, more than, that's been 2,000 years. So he's telling the people their future that would start on the near horizon. He's talking to the people in the temple. Do we realize that that last week, we talk about Palm Sunday and the Last Supper, But do you realize that that entire week Jesus was preaching in the temple daily? He was showing himself in the temple and he was fulfilling a very detailed prophecy in Haggai chapter 2 where God told the people who had built the second temple after Babylon and the old men were weeping because it paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. And God sent the prophet and said, Don't worry. The glory of this temple will surpass the first temple. And here's why. Because a day's coming when I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the desire of all nations is actually going to come and stand in this second temple. Something that never happened in the first temple. Jesus, right here in Luke 21, is doing that. The desire What's the desire of all nations? It's a Messiah. Every nation desires that. That's why Buddha, 500 years before Christ was born told his disciples to look for a coming Messiah, a golden Buddha, that he couldn't give them the answers they were seeking, but one day a Messiah would come, be looking for him. Even the wicked know, even the lost know these things. That's the desire of all nations. He came and he stood in that second temple, and therefore, what the Romans destroyed in A.D. 70 was far better than Solomon's temple, even though it wasn't near as pretty. And so I like to show the Israelis, look, if Jesus wasn't a Messiah, then God lied to you because that second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And it's not coming back. What's going to be built in Jerusalem is not that second temple. What's going to be built is something that God didn't command you people to build. That's Antichrist's seat. The only temples you were commanded to build was Solomon's and... uh, uh, the temple after the Babylon, and then there will be a temple in the millennium, that is Christ. But this temple that you're wanting on the mount, on the temple mount, God didn't command you to build it. You'll build it, and it'll give us great encouragement as followers of the word of God to see God's word fulfilled. But you're going to lose it. But Jesus was in the temple fulfilling messianic prophecy. Those people had no excuse not to see and believe who he was. But they were blind to the word, just like we are. That's why Simeon was in the temple looking for the Messiah. He knew he had to come to that second temple. Mm -hmm. But he's teaching the people in the temple to the people. And he gives them a near sign. But then look in Matthew chapter 24. And again, you're asking, what does this have to do with Revelation? Well, we're just building up to how to pay attention to details in the Scripture. Because... When it says, here's the mind that have has wisdom. If we're going to proceed and try to figure out what this is talking about, we need to pay attention to details. Look at what happens in Matthew 24. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And then verse 3 And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately. Tell us when these things shall be. And then he gives them the sign of the tribulation. He gives them the rapture. This is not the people. This is his disciples on the Mount of Olives talking to him privately. This is the Olivet Discourse. It's on the Mount of Olives. In Mark 13, we're given a little more detail. It's not all the disciples. Uh let's see, in Mark chapter 13, he says, uh, where are we at here? I'm in, Matt. sorry, I'm in Matthew, Mark 13. It was the disciples, but more specifically, it says in verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, the Mount of Olives is across the valley from the temple. You got a great view of the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives, but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hike. <coughs> Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So the disciples had a private discussion on the Mount of Olives, and Mark tells us it was four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four that were called, the two sets of brothers. So Jesus is having a private meeting on the Mount of Olives in Matthew and Mark, but he's publicly preaching in the temple in Luke 21. That's why there's different emphases. What do Matthew and Mark reveal? They reveal the far horizon sign, the abomination of desolation. They reveal to us an escape, that is the rapture. They reveal to us the fulfillment of the Great Commission. These are the things that us as disciples should be worried about. Not worried about the destruction of nations and the coming of the man of sin and looking for Antichrist. What we need to concern ourselves with is filling the Great Commission... Getting the gospel out and looking for the day when two are in the field, one's taking the other's left. That's our hope. America's going to fall. Don't get all worked up. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. We know Antichrist is coming. When we see the Spirit and the signs, we rejoice because our redemption draws nigh. The wicked can't do that. They can only sorrow. You know, I listen to people sometimes in podcasts. You know, they're on the right side of things politically. And they expose things. And there's definitely conspiracies out here that are true. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a conspiracy realist. What that means is I acknowledge and understand there's been one great conspiracy from the Garden of Eden till now whereby Satan is trying to overthrow God's plan. It's a conspiracy that will not succeed. I don't believe every conspiracy theory, but I don't believe anything my government or my, 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 the news media tells me. I don't believe it. I don't trust it. But there's a lot of these conspiracy theories that have a ring of truth. But what's sad is the response is literally one of despair. One of what can we do? We're we're losing everything. We're losing everything. That's not us. We don't despair. We're looking for Messiah. So that's why the emphases are different. You see how the little detail here is so important. Jesus preaching to the people... Jesus having a private discussion. There are things, my friends, we can preach about in here. And we can edify ourselves in here. But the wicked can't understand it. We can talk about God's election. We can talk about the things that comfort us in terms of our salvation. But when we get to the streets, we need to preach, repent ye and believe the gospel. Because they can't understand these things. They don't have spiritual eyes to see. Different emphases. In Luke, that same passage about the rapture is there. The two in the field. The two in the the mill. The two in the bed. But that's back in chapter 17. And that's where Jesus, again, is talking to His disciples. That's good news, guys. Two in the field, one taking the other left. That's good news for the church. It's not good news for the world. It's not good news for the world. Jesus' disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? They knew what the Old Testament scriptures said. They expected it. He will restore the kingdom of Israel. But he said, this is not for you to know right now. You go and preach. That's what we need to do. We need to go and preach. We've not been appointed to wrath, just like our study in 1 Thessalonians that Daniel and Matthew were talking about. We've not been appointed to wrath. There's a big difference between us and they. The pronoun change there in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. We need to be worried about, we need to be looking for Messiah, not anti-Messiah. We need to be looking for the rapture, not MAGA, make America great again. Discernment requires attention to detail. You see how these little details? And he spoke privately with his disciples. In the daytime he was in the temple and at night he was on the Mount of Olives. These weren't put there for our health. These weren't put there to tell us a good story. They were put there to help us rightly divide the word of truth. And he was rich. See how those little details. We want to compare Scripture with Scripture. But we also want to let the Scripture speak and not interrupt it. And sometimes we can overdo the cross-referencing thing, and I'm guilty of that. And we interrupt the Scriptures. Let it speak. And then we'll see and compare Scripture with Scripture. You're probably asking yourself, what in the world is all of this about? You know, uh, we, we, I wanted to get into the book of Revelation today. And we, we, we haven't, but we have. We've laid some groundwork. And my friends, if, we hadn't been, if I hadn't been apart from you for all these months, maybe there wouldn't have been a need to do that because this stuff would be fresh on your mind. But there is. And therefore... I got five minutes. Let's. Uh, well, according to Matthew's example last week, and even Daniel's at times, I might have about thirty or fifteen more minutes. No, I'm not interested in breaking records today. But let's just look for a moment. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, a lot of times when people interpret this scripture, that's a little detail that gets overlooked. It's a little detail that gets overlooked. The seven heads are seven mountains. That's a that's a little detail, but it's very plain and it's very literal. We can't overlook that. The woman, the the false religious world system is seated upon seven mountains. They support her. These mountains, these heads are her chair. What is this a reference to? In history, in John's day, it's a fact that Rome was known as the city that sits on seven hills. That's a fact historically. But in the scriptures, kingdoms are often spoken of as mountains. David referred to his kingdom as a mountain. Jeremiah talked about the Babylonian kingdom that was coming as a destroying mountain. The kingdom of Messiah is a stone cut without hands that becomes a mighty mountain. The millennial kingdom is the mountain of the Lord's house. So what do we have here? We have a reference to Rome? And therefore the Roman Catholic Church? Or is this a reference to kingdoms throughout history? That's the question. We often take an either or approach to the scriptures when we should take a both and. Both and require spiritual discernment. It's the same thing when it comes to God's election and man's responsibility, God's effectual working unto salvation, and man's so called will. I don't like the word free will. I'd just rather throw that in the garbage can. Man has a will, but it's not a free will. And that's what I, here's what I mean. I can will to stand on my feet and jump up and touch that ceiling. I can will that all day long, but I don't have the free will to do it. It doesn't no matter how hard I try, I can't jump naturally and touch that ceiling. So my will is not free to do whatever I want. I can want to fly. But without an airplane, I can't do it. Okay? I can be a sodomite homosexual and want to be a Christian and live in my sodomite lifestyle, but I can't be, no matter how much I will. So if I had free will, I could do whatever I want. But I'm I'm limited by physics and the laws of gravity and all that. So we do have a will. It's just not free. Nothing's free. There's only two things that are, there's only one thing in this life that's free, and it's not our will. It's, it's salvation in Jesus Christ. There's, 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 there's two other things that are they're not free, but they're guaranteed, death and taxes. Well, a third thing that's guaranteed is no real representation in Washington, D.C., no matter who you vote for today. You don't have, you're not represented up there. Nobody represents you. Patrick McHenry, a conservative, does not represent you, my friends. He just doesn't. You might have some representation, local and state elections, but you don't have any real representation. We go through this little circus every four years for president, every two years for Congress. Let's just call it what it is. Doesn't mean we shouldn't vote, but let's acknowledge it for what it is. But God is the author of salvation. God, biblical election is a biblical doctrine, but so is man's responsibility. Remember, God opens our eyes to eternal truths by giving us glimpses of what He sees. Never forget that we see things through human eyes. We're finite. It's not either or, it's both and. There is no contradiction there. There's no contradiction between faith and works. It's, It's not either or, it's both and. It's faith that justifies you before God. It's works that justify your testimony before men. They work together. You can't have one without the other. Works never justify you before God, but they sure as heck justify your testimony before men. Don't tell people they should come to Christ when your works and your testimony don't justify you before them. There's no contradiction between Paul and James. It's very clear if we pay attention. Either or or both and. I don't think this is either Roman Catholicism or worldwide kingdoms. I think it's both. Just like... Antichrist isn't just, or the, um, the beast is not just a man, it's imperial government. It's not just someone that's been here before, it's one that's coming and will die and raise from the dead. It's both and. Prophecy has multi-level facets. So, as we try to determine what this little sentence means here, we need to step back and look at some facts. What are some facts historically Or biblically that we know to be true. Just like when we get into discussions about election and man's free will. We need to step step back. It is a fact that you do not have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's a fact. A lot of people want to travel to the moon. They can't do it. A lot of people want to become a god like Mormons. Can't do it. No matter how hard you want to. So we don't have free will. We have a will. We have a will that deceives us into thinking we're free. We have a will that makes choices, but it's not free. Only God has the will. But even God's will is not free. God can do anything He wants, but He will not do what He's bound Himself by His Word. His righteous nature doesn't allow Him to go against His Word. So we we need to think about, we don't even think about these words. Sometimes we need to step back. That doesn't mean we're not responsible. It doesn't mean we don't have a choice. When When Joshua told the people, choose you this day who you will serve, he meant every word of it. When I tell you to choose Christ, I mean every word of it. But when God tells us we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, I mean, I believe every word of that too. And they don't contradict each other. They're true. Only part of that can the righteous understand. The wicked will never understand it. we got to give them the milk before we can give them the T-bone steak. The baby can't eat a T-bone steak. What are some facts? And I'll stop with this. Historically, the eternal city of Rome was known as the city of seven hills. That's historic fact. At the time John was living... Rome was the city on seven hills. Now remember John is astonished at what he sees here. This beast, I mean being being ridden by a, a whore. Persecution at the hands of the Romans was nothing surprising, but a religious whore, one that claims to know the truth, you riding Roman, riding on Rome and persecuting martyrs, that's surprising. That's shocking. So, historically, the eternal city of Rome and in John's day was known as the city of seven hills. I don't think we can ignore that. I don't think we can ignore it. It was the nucleus of the ancient city built on the left bank of the Tiber River. In fact, these hills had names. You can visit them today. Palatine, Aventine, Calian, Esquiline, Viminal, Quirinal, and Capitoline. They're there. You can go visit them. Later the city would grow and it would become larger and on the other side of the river and farther north there would be other hills that became important like Haniculum and Pincian, and even the Vatican Hill which is there today. But they were not considered part of the nucleus of Rome, the seven hills. There's nothing fancy about that. I mean we do the same thing today. Okay? In, in, In Nepal where Bishnu's store is and where the apartment we use is is not technically Kathmandu. It's Lalitpur. It's another district. It's not even the same district because once you cross the Bagmati River, it's not Kathmandu. But in recent times, because Kathmandu spilled over the river years and years ago and it fills up a bowl of a valley, it's just all Kathmandu. It's not technically, but it is. It's Catman. We live in Kathmandu. Technically, it's Lollabore, but nobody understands it as such. Conversely, that was the same with Rome. It grew, and there were other hills, but it was always the city on seven hills. Kansas City. Kansas City was born on the east bank of the Mississippi River. No, I'm sorry, the Missouri River. Kansas City, Missouri, was founded on the east bank of the Missouri in Missouri. And so when we talk about Kansas City... We talk about Missouri. We don't ever... There is a Kansas City, Kansas because the city's filled over later. But when somebody says Kansas City, we're not thinking about Kansas City, Missouri. We're thinking... I mean, Kansas City, Kansas. I'm sorry. We're thinking about Kansas City, Missouri. That's what we associate it with even though the city is spilled over and there's a Kansas City, Kansas. Same thing here. Just because there were other hills later doesn't mean that Rome wasn't the city on seven hills. And so there's a historic connection here That I think we have to remember. Whatever this beast is, it's connected to Rome. And whoever this whore is, this religious whore, she's connected to the city of Rome. What religious whore for 2,000 years, I mean, for 2,000 years, or actually less than that, it started with Constantine, what religious whore has been and continues to be associated with Rome? The Catholic Church. That's his, I mean, we can't deny that historic fact. The greatest enemy of the Bible-believing Christian in history has not been Islam. Muslims have killed more Muslims in history than they have killed Christians. In fact, there were times back during the Byzantine times and the, uh, the, the, the Western Empire and, and in the latter days of the Roman Empire before it split, there were times when Bible-believing Christians who were persecuted by Catholics found refuge in Muslim cities. So the greatest persecutor of the Bible believer in our history, throughout history was Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic emperors became the Roman Catholic popes, and they all persecuted Christians. Between A.D. 500 and 1,500, 50 million Bible believers put to death. We cannot deny those historic facts. So here in verse 9, there has to be some connection to Roman Catholicism. Is it only Roman Catholicism that's being judged here? Or is it bigger than that? Is it either one or something else or is it both and? And that's what we're going to get into. So I'll just end with that. Um, verse 9, the city on seven hills. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, two weeks from now. Verse 10 is very interesting. We're told there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is and one has not yet come. That's a very important thing. That means we're, though Roman Catholicism is part of this vision, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's part of it, but it's bigger than that. And then we'll get into verse 11. This beast, he's the eighth. What is going on here? How is it in relation to the ten horns? Seven heads and ten horns. Guys, this isn't the only time we see this. We've already seen it with the dragon in chapter 12, the beast in chapter 13, and we see it in Daniel several times. It all goes together. So, I'll end there today, just a, just a brief, I mean, not a brief, it wasn't brief by any means, but just an exhortation on discernment. As we read the scriptures, let's pay attention to detail. You know, spend some time reading this chapter the next couple weeks and pay attention to detail. Let the scripture speak. Let's not miss those great jewels like we see there with Zacchaeus. Oh, we know the story, but we felt that to connect it, that this was Jesus showing something immediately after he said something that seemed impossible. What was more impossible in the eyes of men than a corrupt Jewish publican with short man syndrome coming to Messiah? What was more impossible from man's perspective, but with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Who am I to preach it? Lord, I know that in my finite mind, I'm not capable of understanding the details. But I, and we believe by faith that when you prophesy that it's literal, it will be fulfilled the letter, we can trust it. And one day we'll look back in the ages to come and all the mysteries will make sense. And uh, we'll know that you speak true. Let God be true in every man alive. Have mercy upon our nation, Lord. Help us to burn brightly. Help us to have compassion on those upon which the world does not. Help us to be ever ready to share hope even with our enemies, to love them in that way. But not to affirm them in their wickedness, to love them enough to tell them the truth, just like love bids a warning dune to children playing in a freeway. Lord, bless our food this morning. Thank you that all for all that have come. We pray for those that are out from us today, uh, those that are in their journeys. Protect them and those that have gone out from us, Lord. Uh, in in sin, we pray you would. Uh, uh, bring them to a place of repentance and heal those breaches, Lord, things that you told us would happen. So, Lord, we uh, again thank you for this body, for all the remnant body here in this country today. We pray for them. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them, that the righteous would be a light before we're taken. Um, For the suffering church around the world, Lord, for those faithful serving you on the foreign field, Lord, for those who are hungry and sick and in prison, We lift them up, O God. For Israel, we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that you would fulfill in them the promises of the fathers. Many in Israel are enemies for the gospel's sake, but they are beloved because of the Father and His election and promise. And we acknowledge that. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that uh, um, you would fulfill your word. We look forward to the day when Messiah comes. Come quickly. Lord Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. In Christ's name I pray, amen.